This is the Talk Editions Podcast, episode number three. Welcome in. I'm Marina Kifferstein, violinist of Talk. And I'm Ellery Trafford, percussionist with Talk. Today we're speaking with composer David Bird. Yeah, I think like a lot of composing is expressing the things that you know, and then also expressing the things that you don't know, too. You just offended so many people. I know. (laughs) David is a composer and multimedia artist based in New York City. His work explores the dramatic potential of electroacoustic and mixed media environments and has been performed internationally by some of the best performers working in the field of contemporary music. He's also the artistic director of Cubit, a nonprofit group that curates and produces experimental music in New York City and happens to be the director of creative research with the Tiger Ensemble. Also longtime collaborator and friend. Hey guys, how's it going? Hey David, thanks for being with us today. The piece we're focusing on today, Series Imposture, which we're going to play in full at the end of the episode, holds a really special place for us. So David, can you tell us a little bit about the idea for this piece, where it originated? Yeah, so this piece was made for the first ever TAC concert, which was in 2013 for a concert in Greenpoint. At that point, I didn't think that, or we didn't know that TAC was going to be a group that would sustain, you know, to the point that it's at now. But it, I saw it as an opportunity to write for some of my best friends, including, well, I didn't know that Marina would also be playing on the concert. So if I knew, then I would have added violin. But I'm still a little bit hurt about it, but I'm getting over it. It's a piece for flute, clarinet, voice, and percussion, and um, it's inspired by the Rosenhan experiment, which is um, an experiment that I learned about in uh, Adam Curtis' documentary called The Trap. Some point in, I think it was in like the 70s, um, a psychologist sent a bunch of his graduate students to different psychiatric institutions across the country and um, had them fake different degrees of mental illness to see if they could get into these institutions. Weird. It was very weird and something that you wouldn't expect to happen now. Um, But the weird thing that happened is that a lot of these people who faked admission into these institutions ended up staying there. And because they were treated with these or diagnosed with these different mental illnesses, the um they weren't allowed to leave so they were trapped here for from like a few days to around a month including david rosenhan the person who led the experiment so he was unable to help anyone as they were trying to get out because he was also stuck in these places i thought it was an interesting premise for a piece that you know the instrumentalists could sort of try to become like singers and the singer could try to become like the instrumentalists and that there could be this kind of um, imposter thing happening where they're sort of sharing roles and trying to convince each other of some other identity um, so that's sort of the that was one of the inspirations for this shared identity in a way yeah or sort of like trying to convince the other that there is something else hmm now that I know that, some of it sounds almost desperate, really trying to get somebody to like, listen to me. Yeah, I mean, the, the piece has all these contrasts, and throughout a lot of it, the vocalist Charlotte Mundy is is belting it out, and there is a, a lot of sort of um, trying to state something. You know, each instrumentalist does something to try to attract attention in different ways, and um, the piece is very blocky, the structure is very erratic. And so there's a lot of different things sort of trying to pull your attention at different points. I was in the studio watching the score while while they were recording and I was following the score and I'm like, there's a measure of like 15, 16 and 17, 16. And now you're glad that you weren't in. Yeah, the now I'm glad I didn't have to <laughs> learn that really hard piece. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> yeah, it really gives this kind of frantic impression. 
Thinking about David Byrd circa 2013, why do you think that that particular story resonated with you at that time in your life? I had just started graduate school and I had come from writing a lot of electronic music. And this was a piece that, um, it was a challenge because I was writing for, for good friends and it was also something that I knew was going to be purely acoustic. And so it was something where I was kind of wondering like what is my voice as an acoustic composer and what is the sort of like language of musical writing that I wanted to explore at the time. I had relied on a lot of things like effects and distortion and manipulations that I could do in electronic media but I wondered how those would translate into writing for acoustic instruments and I think that was actually at a point too where I had lost hope in doing that or I had exhausted possibilities regarding that and so I ended up also kind of stealing from other pieces there's a Ravel quote there's a Chelsea quote and uh, things like that sort of integrated into this acknowledgement that I was gonna this piece was gonna be an imposter piece whoa that's heavy man I mean that was a six almost seven years ago now do you feel like you've found that voice are you still feel like an imposter I think I still feel like an imposter I think a lot of that too is um like being an American and seeing like what tradition am I, uh, you know, perpetuating and, and whose voices am I taking up as I, you know, write a piece of music. And I think one of the things that helped me a little bit was recognizing that when I was composing um, with electronics, I was doing a lot of sampling and thinking about sampling as a form of expression too was something that I found compelling. And so that's something that I've sort of accepted as a part of my expression as an artist now. This piece, as we mentioned, was written in 2013. How do you think your musical language as a composer has evolved in that time? Like, are the pieces you're writing now in the same general style as series, would you say? There are definitely things that move from one piece to the next that um, I can't really control because it's probably just part of my natural way of, of writing. But I do think with each piece, I try to tackle something new, something that I'm self-conscious about in a previous piece or, um, and I think with series, that was a huge, I remember writing it, I was so nervous, like it was such a big risk for me to do these rhythmic uh, transformations that happen in the piece. And I didn't know if it would sound good or even be playable really. And it ended up being so fulfilling because when it, when I heard it for the first time and I heard Tack playing it, it was like, wow, you can really imagine things that you can't even think is possible in the moment. And so that was a big learning experience for me that I try to now take into other domains. The feeling of leaving something kind of like 90% on the page and thinking that it will be realized in performance is something that's exciting and kind of taking risks, I think, is, is valuable. Or allowing your performers to sort of take those risks for you almost. Yeah, because you know that they're better than you. You know, because I, I would I would even sit down and try to do some of the rhythms that were in the in the piece and I couldn't do it, but I could almost do it. And so feeling like this is enough of a challenge for someone who's twice as good as me. It's really uh, nice to have that kind of faith in in performance. Well, sometimes it doesn't work. So, <laughs> yeah. Are you a fan of multiple interpretations of your works? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, absolutely. I It's like a great privilege to have other people play your music and sometimes I don't know exactly what I want sometimes like th that's what I recognize when we were recording it um, for the album or because I think sometimes we approach these these metrical um, divisions in like a, a looser way and it grooves a little bit more and I think in that recording we ended up doing it really like metronomic and having it be really sort of mechanical which I also really liked and I think it was, it was hard for me to choose which one was 
better in a way. So that act that recording process was really difficult, I found, just because I've heard it in different iterations by this point. You said that instrumentation for this piece was based on talk, but within those instruments, well, for percussion, it's very bare bones, snare drum, woodblock, one crotale. Had a wealth of things to choose from. How did you decide on that? Uh, I think in some sense it was, you know, I knew that I was involved in organizing this concert. I didn't want it to be a burden on anyone. I just wanted for it to work and that it could be traveled around and it could be a convenient thing. And I think that's probably why it's been picked up by different groups over the years. I also like that the snare drum, everyone's sitting down in the piece and the snare drum becomes kind of like a table and there's a lot of gestures for the percussionist where they're sort of like writing or doing these sort of rhythmic kind of scratching sounds which sound like pen on paper or something. So thinking about the percussionist in the piece as like a scribe or as someone like a doctor taking notes or something, that was a kind of image that I was thinking about a little bit as I was writing it. What about the, the rest of the instruments? I wanted it to be very focused around the voice. I was really inspired by Lewis Nielsen. He writes a lot for instrumentalists who use voice in different ways. And I wanted to think about the voice being a way of modulating the instrument and also being a way of connecting with Charlotte the singer. And so in this moment that you guys mentioned before where the clarinet and flute are singing and playing into their instruments, it's like almost like a, a weird sunken abyss where you hear the sort of echoes of Charlotte's voice kind of in this lower register, kind of echoing through the instruments a little bit. I sort of wanted to think about every member of the ensemble kind of being a vessel for other instruments to sort of pass through. You mentioned playability. Is that something you think about a lot? I, I do think about it a lot. I try to kind of in my head go through every moment and see if it's playable. Sometimes I can't do it. Like my brain just can't comprehend all the things like percussion is like probably the hardest thing for me to really think about can you do a stick change in that amount of time and like how does that sort of practically work the percussion is one of the areas that I've left most to the performers because I can't comprehend doing all those different things um, at the same time and then also turning the page and I don't know I don't know how you do it setting up someone so that they can succeed rather than fail lets you do those risks that you want to take musically you know, because if someone's struggling over doing a specific technique, it just sort of slows down the progress of the entire piece to achieve whatever it's trying to achieve. So yeah, you can still have complicated things, things that are difficult and challenging. But if, if a performer is like really having like an existential struggle with their instrument, it might not be worth, you know, slowing everything else down for. You do a really good job of giving enough information that if you're just going for an effect, you make it really clear what the effect is and you don't over notate things. Yeah, I think like a lot of composing is expressing the things that you know and then also expressing the things that you don't know too. Like if, if I am trying to just go for an effect, like I'm just gonna say what I know and leave out the things that I don't know and, and give the performer what they need to, you know, be creative with that information. There's one Cratale hit that I just wanted to mention. You're going to bring up the Cratale. We ended up using it, right? I don't think so. No, you cut it. Of course I cut it. Oh, David. We still do it live, though. Yeah, we we still play it live, so that's why you have to... Well, if you're if you're out there listening and you ever see that talk ensemble is programming series and posture, you have to see it live because that Cratale hit is really great and it's absent from the recording. <laughs> I think after the first performance, I asked Ellery to not play it. And every single time they've done it since, he's just found a way to lock eyes with me mid-performance and play this super hilarious Crotale hit. It's my favorite part of the piece. 
Um, we've talked a few times, just like in random conversation, about films and film theory and stuff. And that seems to be a small passion for you. Does that influence a lot of your work? Yeah, well, I, I like films a lot. I imagine most people do. I, for me, like uh, that was one of my earliest musical entry points, actually, because I was making a lot of little home movies growing up. And realizing the moment that you could put sound on something was really exciting. That's when I started to think more critically about music and the power of music. And yeah, I like film. I love films. And um, yeah, I think they can challenge people in ways that sometimes music can't. And so that's something I find to be an inspiration. I think like musically, it's hard to see how that necessarily translates into the work that I do now. But I do think sometimes about framing performers as actors in a sense, or treating them with a kind of presence on stage in a way that they're not just sounds. Like, they don't just produce sounds, but they're like physical beings on a stage. So it's not as if you're writing a soundtrack for another movie that's going on. It's like, what's happening on stage that is the Yeah, that that's is the film. totally the movie. Yeah, I'm thinking about a piece that you wrote for our flutist, Laura Cox. Is it Multiplicities? Multiplicities. Yeah, how many video tracks are there? It's I think 10 or 12. And they're all maybe? overlaid on, it's it's all just her overlaid on herself. Mm-hmm. And it's just the most amazing effect to watch that piece live. It's mm-hmm. just like, yeah, that's yeah. really a film. Mm-hmm. But it's also a performance. It is, so yeah. It's, yeah, I think that's something, maybe that's a good example of how those things kind of overlap. How do you do that then? If... You want the stage performance to be sort of cinematic. Do you work that into the notes themselves? Do you pick certain techniques? Um, I think, you know, I don't do a lot of repetition. I'm not against repetition per se, but, you know, having a performer do the same exact thing over and over for me, even though a lot of cinematic music is, is repetitive, if you see that on a stage, like the performers kind of falls away, they sort of disappear. And so I think about ways of maybe doing the opposite of that and finding ways of really foregrounding the person in a space so that they have a kind of presence and, and that that presence is something that's written for and played with. So I don't know necessarily how I do that, but I think that that's something that's in a lot of my pieces in some way. So your music is never like disembodied from the person who's playing it. It's all... Yeah, absolutely. One thing. And I think that was some that was the hardest thing for me to learn coming from working with computers is that we're in, in that domain, everything is about the sound. When I was writing these early pieces for purely acoustic instruments like series, the thing that I was writing was like the people playing the notes, not the, the sounds that were coming out, really making sure that all those gestures were like embodied and thinking about that embodiment as part of a parameter that I could compose for. That was like definitely something that it took me a lot of time to learn, but something that I feel like is part of most of my music now. It seems like embodiment is a really important aspect to a piece of music for you what else would you say you value in music like what is what are you responding to that's a good question i don't know i think um definitely like risk like knowing a composer knowing where they're coming from and knowing that they that they sort of took a risk with something and i appreciate that because it's something that's hard to do just when you're writing music and i think another thing is um when i write something i want the piece to say something but not necessarily like tell you what to do and I, so maybe likening a piece of music to like a monument that it's it recognizes its like place in time but it's also not imposing it's not forced upon you it's something that you can go and walk into a field and see this thing and it's singular it says a thing it does so does something but then you can also leave it and it's just it is what it is could you 
tell us maybe about like a specific experience that you've had where you feel like you did that really well are there any pieces of yours that that you like i think there are certain pieces where like you finish it and it's like you're glad that you're a part of something that did that and i think part of it really involves that you're making music with people and walking away from an experience where everyone's happy is really good Maybe, okay, maybe a specific example. I did a piece recently with um, Ning Yu, the pianist from Yarn Wire. And this one is almost exactly like what I described my musical ideal to be, which is like some sculpture or something. But we made this um, with the help of Mark Riegelman, who's a, um, a sculpture artist. We made this huge sculpture that had like 30 to 50 enormous corrugated tubes and we had speakers inside of all of them. And Ning played piano. I wrote a piece for her that distributed her sounds through the sculpture in different ways. And um, this was, I think, exciting because there were so many different people involved doing really, or everyone had a really distinct role to play in the collaboration. And yet we were talking to each other for the entire process. There was just like so much trust involved and the piece was so big that you didn't feel like it was, I don't know. It was like this. It was a very unifying experience. And so that was a cool one, I think. And there's other good ones, good experiences. I'd like to hear about your process specifically. Do you snack while you compose? And if so, what snacks do you eat? The snack question is good. Like the process part of it for me is about putting myself in uncomfortable situations and being trying to be creative with that in some so way. Only like hot Cheetos. Only hot like- Cheetos. <laughs> light bulbs? That light would be bulbs. uncomfortable. You'd crunch them. Oh, oh, oh God. That'd be awful. Uh, but definitely something where there's a lot of a snack type and I can crunch. I'm, I'm not like gorging myself, but I can over a long period of time munch on something like chips are great like popcorn is great oh popcorn yeah crunch crunch is good definitely crunch well i mean i'm pretty sure that like there have been studies done on like gum chewing like activating your brain a little bit but i'm pretty sure that eating chips is way more uh brain activating than than gum i'm just gonna say that i read a study about that yeah what are you doing when you're not writing music do you ever find yourself in situations where you're not writing music i guess my main employment right now is like teaching is it teaching music it's teaching music Mm. so it's kind of like what i do all the time but it's not like a job it's well i don't know it it is a job but i don't know it's hard do not music stuff yeah i i watch movies i like to cook what do you like to cook sorry (laughs) i interrupted you that's recently i've been making some really good tacos um i brought back some lemons from my house in california when i was there we've got a lemon tree and so you know, it's like little lemon spritzes on a taco. Straight in the taco shell? What else is in there? Um, black beans, avocado, red onions, like a paprika sort of hot kind of sprinkle. And you go for hot paprika, not smoked. Oh, sorry. No, I, I do have a smoked. I'm sorry. You're, it's this smoked. This uh, is important. Yeah, we got to know. Well, it's like a, what is it? The people want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, blackened. It's like a blackened uh, spice. Mm. Okay. I'm not a good cook. I'm just going to say it. But. It's what I do when I'm not composing, I guess. Mm-hmm. If you could pick a superpower, though, what would it be? I think I think slowing down time would be really cool. For some reason, that just seems, like, great, because I think also, like, disappearing, being able to, like, transport places would be really cool. But I think, actually, if you slow down time, then you could just walk around to the different places that you need to go. So you have super speed in this situation, basically. 
Well, I think there's I think slowing I think slowing down is different. There's 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 there are differences between those two specific superpowers. If I can wax nerdy for a second. No, please don't. Because yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out the difference. Well, I mean, if, if time stops and you're like basically being yourself when the world around you is, is motionless, you're still like moving at your own speed. You're sort of like, you're having more time in that amount of time. Whereas if you're just super fast, time is moving at the same rate for you and the rest of the world. You're just moving through it quicker. And you have to think a lot more about aerodynamics. True. You'd have to wear some kind of suit. Yes, Which exactly. I feel like if you were slowing down time, you could just wear normal clothes. Which exactly. Is what I love. Yeah. I'm not a suit guy. Like super, super suit or just suits in general? I, probably suits in general. Yeah. When was the last time you wore a suit? Probably for many failed job interviews. <laughs> uh, one of those ones. One of those. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Cool. <laughs> Going back to the... If time is relative and you're, you have super speed, one thing I realized is that you'd probably just die really fast. Wouldn't that be so sad? I run to Alaska, and then when I get there, I'm like five years older or something. Yeah, probably. also you oh. would just be aging super quickly. Yeah. They'd be like, wow, he's he looks terrible. Yeah. I think the difference, the difference comes in how, where your power stems from. Like, are you messing with chronology, or you just have like a super heightened metabolism, which allows you to move mm-hmm. really fast? Which would in turn actually, you know, help the aging process and you'd stay younger for longer. Mm. So if you were, were going to go to Alaska in a regular way, what is your... Uh, Boat. Cruise Boat? ship. Cruise ship. Does that get us too close to the cruise ship part? There's a cruise ship We're part? not going to do the we're cruise not, ship part. It's offensive. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now I was going to say what's your road trip playlist, but also what's your boat trip playlist? <laughs> oh, road trip. Road trip, boat trip. And are they different? <laughs> yeah. I think they'd have to be different, and I don't know why. What A boat sounds really loud to me. Well, it's because right. all the watch sound. Can you give us a couple of, maybe one track off of each playlist? Yeah, so the, the road trip, I mean, probably just like some Americana kind of stuff, some folky stuff. I do like Mitski. She's cool. I like the War on Drugs album that came out recently was kind of good. That's very road trippy. I'm just trying to think of things that would be good for that. I don't know. Road trips is sort of easy. What about Anything? the boat trip though? That's the, boat the trip? that's the tough question here. Like Brian Eno or William Basinski. When I think about a boat playlist, I think of the soundtrack to um, Speed Two when they're on a boat. <laughs> no, it's the Steve Zissou and Oh Life Aquatic. Life Aquatic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this whole time I was thinking about a speedboat, but I should be thinking more about, like, other types of boats. But Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I was thinking cruise ship. I was oh. thinking, like, tugboat. But or like a fishing boat, perhaps. <laughs> fishing boat, yeah. Submarine. The shrimping boat. Make some money on the way there. Yeah, that's a, That might be a longer question, I think, to yeah. address all the different, all the different for different boats. So uh, what do you have coming up? Like, uh, are there any projects that we should keep an eye out or... Yeah, um, I'm working on um, an album for TAC called Synonomic, which is, I guess, my working title right now, but it's all based around uh, meeting with each talented member of the ensemble and recording some sounds. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the talented ones? Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're all talented. Um, but yeah, meeting with everyone and recording sounds and then processing them. And uh, yeah, I'm working on that right now. Uh, I'm also working on a piece for uh, the French, I think they're French-based, but Sound Initiative. That's a really funny piece right now. I've had a lot of fun working on it. It's called How To, and it's taking a bunch of different how-to videos on YouTube, because it's like one of the most popular genres of YouTube videos, and replacing different um, kind of audio from one on the other one. 
So I have videos of people, you know, teaching you how to put clothes on and then having the audio from like how to tie a knot and um, how to write a, write a haiku and then how to figure skate, how to catch a Pokemon with how to cut a um, glass bottle in half with a sword. So like little things like that and just kind of, I have so many, I have like hundreds of these like weird combinations of things and it's been really funny to, to work on it. Is there music in that one? Yeah, so they're actually doing, sometimes they're actually doing like a score type of thing that follows along with it. And then during a lot of different parts of it, they're like asked to do like how-to related things related to their instruments. So I have like a how to kiss thing, but it's um, how to do a flute embouchure. Mm. And so there's someone teaching you how to kiss and you're like adjusting your flute embouchure. And there's a video of the Sir Galway, the famous flute player Laura's gonna kill me I don't the you know the famous one he's adjusting his like lips and it's like very goofy sounding um and then like how to play piano and how to play the violin how to hold a drumstick I have the audio from how to hold a baby and that's really funny because um it's like rock it back and forth and then like the person's like spinning their drumstick and, <laughs> anyways I'm doing that and then I'm writing a piece for ensemble vortex and then love music collective and those are the things that I have coming up musically that's a lot yeah you're busy. Trying to stay busy. Congratulations. How many pieces Chilling. would you say you write a year? Or maybe the better question is like total duration of music in a year. What do you think? It depends. I've I've written less and less music as the years have progressed, which is not it's not a good sign. But No, um, it means that it's getting better and better. Hopefully, yeah. I think I write like three three pieces make it in my catalog a year. Maybe some other ones don't make it, but yeah, like three. It's about, about it, yeah. So, David, the time has come. Nice. We're going to ask you, would you rather do this thing or that thing? So, is it this or that? That. Okay, cool. And why? No. Yeah. That's new. <laughs> would you rather never use a computer again or never use a pen and paper again? Never use a computer again. Easy decision for you. Pretty easy it kind of like ruins my life going forwards. You kind of need to have a computer, but I feel like that would be funny if I was like the guy who didn't have a computer. I'd be like my grandma. It's like, oh, he just doesn't have a computer. I didn't respond to an email. It's not my fault. I just, I just can't. don't have a computer. Just can't do it. Would you rather listen to nothing but Appalachian folk music or Baroque opera for the rest of your life? Both of those are so bad. Oh, I th- you just <laughs> offended so many people. I thought that was kind I of know. an easy one, but damn, dude. I love Baroque opera. Really? I love Appalachian folk music. I, was, I guess I would say Appalachian <laughs> folk music. Not because you made me say it, but I think it would be that one. And I, I can't say why. It's like not even... Because you don't want to offend any more people than you already did? Basically, yeah. Okay. <laughs> would you rather write a piece using only bioluminescence or only flesh-eating plants? Bioluminescence, absolutely. I almost just cut you off in that one because it sounded so cool. But But you didn't need to hear what the second option was. (laughs) Well, I thought this was going to be one of those ones where it's like two good things instead of like two bad things, like the previous question. Flesh-eating plants could be really cool in a piece. Yeah, but the flesh-eating part, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they don't need to be eating flesh in the piece. I don't know what else they do, (laughs) like other plant stuff. It would be cool to just have the sounds of like digesting plants. Like eating leather or some... Yeah, give them something, like dead flies or something. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah. But I think bioluminescence would be pretty cool. Would you rather do a three-month artist residency 
Alone on the moon or on a boat in the middle of the ocean? I think on a boat, just because there's probably more interesting smells. Like if you're on the moon, you probably only have your own smells emanating in your own little zone. And as much as I like space and think space is cool, but I I think that um, if I were there to work, it would be a very like sterile and not super inspiring thing. I think the boat thing would be cool. Thanks for taking time out of your very busy schedule of watching really intense documentaries and eating chips. It means a lot to us. Thanks. You're very busy and we appreciate your time. I'm not, but thanks. (laughs) Thanks for coming here and yeah. Yeah. Well, bye. All right, see ya. Bye, David. This has been the Talk Editions Podcast, Episode 3, with David Bird. For links to David's music and to other things we talked about in this episode, check out our show notes. David's piece, Series Imposture, is featured on Talk's recent album, Ur, which you can purchase at talkensemble.bandcamp.com. Stick around to listen to the piece in its entirety at the end of this episode. If you're enjoying the Talk Editions podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it so others can find us. For extra bonus points, tell your friends. Our next episode will feature an interview with composer Anne Clear. This episode was recorded at the Columbia Computer Music Center, produced by Marina Kifferstein, Charlotte Mundy, and David Bird, and edited by Charlotte Mundy. For more information about Talk, go to talkensemble.com. Thanks for listening.